Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Igbo Iguanas podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the novel Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. Today's episode is entitled Okonkwo, Yam Eater, Wife Beater. My name is Max Morava, and I'm one of your hosts. With me are Caleb Grady and Brianna LaRue. We're seniors here at East Henderson High School. We recently read the book in preparation for our English for Honors class. We'd like to give a little bit of a shout out to the author Chinua Achebe. He was a Nigerian novelist who had previously taught at Bard College as well as Brown University. Things Fall Apart was his first novel as well as his magnum opus. He sadly passed away in 2013. Let's jump right into discussing some of the themes of the text. First topic we'll be discussing is Okonkwo's struggle with masculinity as well as his repression of self. Throughout the text, Okonkwo is a really poor definition of masculinity. The only emotion that he lets himself express is anger, and this kind of is shown when he won't express his love to any of anyone, not even his wives or his favorite children. And it really seems like Igbo society has that kind of um, proto-masculine, like very patriarchal. Uh, the man's role is to show strength and provide, uh, and I think Okonkwo's. Um, experiences as a young boy and a young adult growing up with his father being so outcast from the clan due to his perceived femininity um, really influences how much of um, kind of a hard-headed, stubborn man he grows into, which is really an overarching theme of the entire text. Uh, When you think of it as a analytical view of uh, Igbo society and its interaction with uh, colonialism. Well, that's also really interesting because his father is actually called Agbala, or woman, and that's something that Okonkwo is just really fearful of. He's terrified of being seen as feminine, and it literally leads him to murder his only son. He Well, not his only son. Well, sorry. The adopted his boy. His adoptive son. His favorite son. Yes. The one who he was very proud of. And he just didn't want to be seen as titleless, which is what his father was. And that's why his father was called Ekbala, because he had no titles. So when he's cast out to his motherland, he actually loses all of his titles. And that's why he's so miserable for those years that he spent there. This all comes from a general misunderstanding by Okonkwo, mixing up masculinity with aggression, and that they can be separate. And while being masculine, he can also show more than just hatred and anger towards people, as opposed to what other people in his tribe seem to have figured out being both masculinity, but also caring for other people, as opposed to just showing aggression always. And I think a lot of that uh, comes from his attempts to distance himself from his father to the most drastic extent possible. Because in theory, the uh, some of his other friends in the clan, even the titled men, have healthier relationships with their wives, daughters, and sons when really Okonkwo um, has fixated so much on his flawed view of masculinity that it really consumes him, which is why it makes his death by suicide so twistedly ironic that it's seen as the most effeminate crime in, in the clan. It's seen as something going against God and against their ancestors, which is exactly how people viewed his father. Well, even his friend in the clan, who even who was the one who advised him not to go and kill um, his adopted son. Yeah. yeah, 
he he wouldn't even bury him after he did that after he killed himself because it was an effeminate crime and he couldn't even have a pop- proper burial. The um, colonists had to bury him, which is really just kind of an insult to injury type thing. Yeah, I mean you commit suicide due to these people's influence on your way of life, and then for them to be the only people left who are willing willing to and allowed to touch your body, that's really, I don't know. It says something about the kind of themes of, uh, <clears throat> the themes of change and tradition and that kind of thing. That leads into our next theme, the struggle between traditions and changing times. So something that Okonkwo experienced at the later end of the novel was um, the influence of Christianity on his on the Igbo people and on the tribes of Amofia. Um, his son converted with Christianity, and that was a big shock to him because that was one of his children and someone that he felt that he had raised in a certain way, and he just couldn't cope with the idea of Christianity. He believed that it would lead to the loss of his status. It would lead to loss of his um, titles, which is what he considers to be womanly, and it, but this same thing is what draws some of the other members of his tribe, some of the women who have been forced to murder their twin babies or um, people have been forced to mutilate their babies after they're stillborn because they believe that they're the, the, um, Obanji, the, 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 the reoccurring the devil kid, children, yeah, the devil basically. children, basically. And, so the weak and the lazy people who are titleless are essentially the ones that are drawn to Christianity, which is also what gives it such a bad rap to the Igbo people and why they just can't cope with that, or at least for Okonkwo and some of the other men. Mm-hmm. I think to an extent this came from him being overly attached to certain traditions from his tribe previous to the arrival of Christianity his idea to immediately go to war as soon as there was an idea opposing theirs was something that not everybody else in his clan was on board with because they were more open-minded as opposed to him immediately turning to violence, which as we discussed came from his fear of femininity. I think um, a big part of it is when you analyze the fact that what really almost pushes Okonkwo over the edge is when his eldest son in Woye uh, converts, which is really kind of a, a dual dual blow because one, it's his eldest son, his heir, um, who he throughout the novel basically verbally and physically abuses in the fear that he sees some of his father in in Woye, um, and in, in most likely uh, in kind of a cruel trick of fate. That's probably what pushed him to convert to Christianity. So maybe there's a part of Okonkwo deep down that knows that he he basically pushed his son into the arms of the thing that is destroying his way of life. And I think that really comes to a head, pardon the pun, with the beheading of the, um, of the colonial messenger. And Okonkwo realizes he's not going to be supported by his tribe um, and that his... <clears throat> proto-masculine one-track way of living just isn't isn't possible in in the world they're living in and he can't adapt which i feel is a very strong allegory by chinua chebe towards 
the feelings of many African migrants uh, and victims of colonialism, especially in the diaspora, um, and their feelings of displacement and uh, a disconnection with their own culture, which is really what Okonkwo is showing. All right, let's jump into analyzing some of the figurative language used in Things Fall Apart. We're going to start with the um, personification of the evil forest. So the evil forest in the text is where they discard essentially the bodies of the outcasts. So I believe that's where um, Okonkwo's father was buried. You're correct. It's also stated within the text that I can't remember exactly when, but when a man is afflicted with some specific type of sickness, they tie him to a tree in the evil forest and leave him to die. And sometimes there have been cases where they crawl back to the village and they must be forcibly removed once more. So the evil forest really personifies um, the darker side of the Igbo people's ancestor worship. It's where the demons and the malevolent spirits dwell. Um, and it's really almost a perfect representation of the white colonial settlers. Well, I think it's also like, it's where they bury these outcasts, the twins that they um, perceive as evil, um, stillborn children are buried there, people who commit suicide are buried there, and I think that that is also very representative of the group of people from the Igbo tribe that the Christians were trying to appeal to. These outcasts that knew that this is where they were going to end up. This is what the Igbo society viewed them as, as part of this evil forest, not even deserving to be buried on their own land. Really people who didn't fit the norms of their society. Yeah, and they realized that like, if they don't convert to Christianity, like this is their destiny. Yeah. Another symbol that was used a lot throughout this book was yams, both as a symbol of masculinity and also prosperity. Absolutely. So yams were used to symbolize a man's work ethic and thus his masculinity. They were the backbone of the Igbo economy. They were literally the basis of every meal. I mean, and the man was supposed to grow those. So like every other crop essentially was grown by the women, but a man had to grow his yams. So basically, the more yams that you had, or the more yams that survived the um, harvest, they were, they, they, the more yams, the more masculine you were, essentially. So one of the things that Okonkwo sets out to do once he becomes a man, and his father dies, is he wants to start his own yam farm. He goes and he borrows some seeds from, um another member of his tribe. An elder statesman of the tribe, really. A powerful man who he most likely looked up to quite a bit more than his father. Yeah, because he had nothing left from his father. And I think that's also why he was so bitter towards his father. His father left him with nothing. His father never grew yams. His father wasn't masculine. And that's just one of the overarching themes of this story. Is It's also very interesting that following... Okonkwo's exile, it's deliberately mentioned in the text that his closest friend within the tribe offers to harvest his yams for him and store them, Um, showing that despite Okonkwo's general standoffishness, if you will, he was to some extent personable and uh, charming. Well, he was just really well-respected, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But even 
to be well respected doesn't mean to be loved. To be loved like, or to have friendship. It was also noted that after he was exiled, one of the first things Okonkwo began to do was farm again. Absolutely. And it was also mentioned many times that he was very unsuccessful at farming once he was exiled, which could have been indirectly or directly related to the fact that he had lost all sense of both masculinity and prosperity when he was um, sent from his tribe. Well, and he, purpose, was also, really. he was also in his motherland, and that's like an effeminate territory essentially i mean he did not want to be there it symbolized him losing all of his titles and it makes sense that his yam to symbol masculinity didn't grow from in the area or the land that his mother was from it's interesting that the process of the clan through exile is to send the um guilty party to their motherland uh it really shows how kind of ingrained uh, this belief of masculinity and such are. And I really think that the yams are an important symbol um, due to the fact that they're really viewed as the most important thing in Igbo life. I mean, they provide food, they provide wealth, they provide um, work. It's really the staple crop and the staple profession. To be a farmer is to be respected and powerful. And... Okonkwo losing not only his home, but also his status as a successful farmer is just as big of a blow, I think, as his exile. It's also worth mentioning that he wouldn't let his daughters marry in his motherland. He didn't want them to stay there. He wanted them to go back to the tribe that they were from and marry there or even marry to another tribe because he did not want them to stay in his motherland, which is where they would have been if, because the the woman goes where her husband is, essentially. Yes. And then they have they have their kids in that land, the land of the husband or the fatherland. So for our fourth topic, we're going to be examining the sequence and structure of the text. Basically, we're going to look at the choices that the author made and how different choices could have altered the work. I mean, really, I'd say that the, um, the structure of Things Fall Apart is is just a linear narrative. Okay, okay. I, I think it's also arguable, though, that it's a um, cyclical structure. The novel is essentially separated into these three parts, umofia, exile, and then the return home. And a cyclical structure is basically defined as um, where you start at one place, and then there's like something that happens in the middle, and then you return to where you started, kind of ma like making a circle. I think um, structurally, it's also very... it's. His diction is very straightforward and that gives the novel like the feel of like actual historical account. I mean, it feels like somebody is watching this happen and Yeah, the novel doesn't mess around. It's not yeah. it, it if you're looking for something with uh flowery uh prose and that kind of writing, you're not finding it here. This is a very straightforward to the point description. Of a uh, of a narrative, not many words are wasted. No, like, he just kind of says exactly what he wants the reader to know, and there's no side stories and there's no asides that the author takes, which I think serves serves the text well. I yeah. think uh, I think telling it in a manner that wasn't and simplistic to me isn't even the right word because it's not simplistically written; it's well written, um, but telling it in this kind of 
blunt manner, uh, I think really influences the the reality of the situation and the gravity of the situation. Because I think this text is meant to be viewed uh, as a wider commentary than just to the native Igbo people in Nigeria. It's meant to be viewed as a commentary more on aspects of colonialism throughout the world. Uh, it just so happens that he, as an African male, is going to be very much so concerned with the diaspora and the, the rape of Africa and such and, and things. Yeah, I think it's also um, kind of a com- like commentary on just how Eurocentric the world is. Like the idea that the European male is always right. They don't traditionally respect other cultures. And that's still like a overarching issue throughout society to this day. For topic number five, we'll be discussing the use of a third person omniscient point of view. So this really, I think, is the most effective point of view that uh, Achebe could have chosen for this novel. I think from a... If the novel was told from a first-person point of view, from, say, most likely Okonkwo's view, you would really get a one-dimensional view of both himself and the world surrounding him. I think it would be tainted by the lens that we see Okonkwo view the world through. Whereas when you get both the, what's the word I'm looking for, perspectives that both agree and are contrary to Okonkwo's perspective. It fleshes out the worldview, which when attempting to accurately portray a culture is an extremely important thing to do. I think it's also important in the way that this novel is meant to seem like it's a real historical account. Even though it's fiction, it's meant to read as if it's really happened, you're really there when it's happening. And I think without that third-person omniscient point of view, that just wouldn't happen. It wouldn't be portrayed in the way that the author wanted it to be. Another way the author uses the third-person omniscient point of view is by having the narrator interject with explanations of the Igbo culture or just past stories highlighting aspects of their culture, such as the explanation of the Ogbanji children. I'm not sure if I said that right. Ogbanja children? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> but I think that this is really important because with a first-person perspective, we would only hear about Okonkwo's experience experiences with these cultural traditions whereas the narrator explains them almost in like a broad point of view is just an, in general what they mean and how they're important to many people yeah for topic number six we're going to be discussing the metaphors in things fall apart specifically the metaphor of enoch eating with sacred python so this metaphor is meant to represent um the igbo versus the colonial values it shows how compatible the incompatible, I'm sorry, the two cultures are. So through the killing of the python, it shows the killing of Igbo traditions, and not by one of the colonial people, but by one of the Igbo people themselves. So this shows like a transition into a new religion, not on behalf of the colonists, but actually on behalf of the Igbo people themselves. By having somebody like Enoch eat the sacred python, and then this represents the Igbo religion and culture, it's it's more relevant than if they had a colonial character do that in the same way. Not only just an Igbo, but a Christian convert, it really exemplifies just the spitting in the face almost of the Igbo culture and its people. 
by the the white colonialists, it really takes it to a whole new level of petty. Now, for topic number seven, we'd like to discuss the Igbo's culture when it comes to bartering and the way that marriages are arranged within their culture and how that reflects women's role in society and the patriarchal structure of Igbo land. It's very prevalent throughout the text, especially in the uh, early text uh, prior to Okonkwo's exile through multiple scenes where they're discussing bridal prices and dowries that while women are to some extent respected, they're still viewed in that sort of proprietary way where they still exist as a type of property. Um, And that can really be seen through the bartering with the bundles of sticks and the sharing of uh, the koa nuts as well as the, as the, that's the palm wine. And the yams. And the yams as well. Yams are really um, an important part, which is uh, almost to me an unintentional metaphor showing the symbol of Igbo masculinity as something that is used to control and basically purchase a woman. Well, it's also interesting that Okonkwo wouldn't even allow his daughters to marry in his motherland when they became of age. He waited until they went to um, back to his fatherland, which is interesting because it also shows just how it's like they took in two separate ways in this novel that they show that femininity is frowned upon among the Igbo people. They combine that into one scenario, which I thought was very interesting and kind of like shoved in your face, you know? I also noticed that a lot of times they would just lump women in with whenever they were talking about property. Whenever they referred to somebody as prosperous, they would note how many yams they had and their farm and their, and their title and, and their wives. Their wives were just lumped in there as, as if another piece of property. All right, that's been this episode of the Igbo Iguanas, where we discuss Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. A big thank you to my co-hosts, Caleb Grady and Brianna LaRue. I've been another one of your hosts, Max Morava. Uh, Next week's episode, we will be talking about 1984 by Orson Welles, specifically uh, how it parallels our society today. Thank you very much and have a good one.